Hi, this is Jules Urbach of Render, the network that is revolutionizing the digital creation process. I am here on the edge of NFT, the podcast that is revolutionizing the way you learn about all things NFTs. Keep listening. Hey there, NFT curious listeners. Stay tuned for today's episode and find out why Otoy and Render are at the center of some of the most innovative rendering technology ever made. What kind of guy gets to make the cover of a Marvel comic book? And how the NFT market is reaching all-time highs despite a pullback in other parts of the economy. All this and more on today's episode. Enjoy. And remember, NFTLA is coming March 28th to the 31st. It will be an unforgettable experience featuring the creme de la creme in the NFT space. Head on over to nftla.live to get your tickets as early as possible for best pricing. And if you or someone you know wants to partner with us to co-create this special, unforgettable experience, there are still opportunities to get involved, but they're also going fast. So please reach out at contact at edgeofnft.com. Welcome to the Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger, the podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features guest Jules Urbach, founder and CEO of Otoy and Render, that's O-T-O-Y and R-N-D-R. The Render Network is the leading provider of decentralized GPU-based rendering solutions revolutionizing the digital creation process. Jules sets the strategic vision for the company and is the chief architect of the company's tech roadmap. He is widely hailed as a pioneer in computer graphics, streaming, and 3D rendering with over 25 years of industry experience. Prior to Otoy, Jules created the web's first 3D video game platform and licensed the software to Macromedia, Disney, Warner Brothers, Nickelodeon, Microsoft, Hasbro, and AT&T. Jules has written and spoken extensively about blockchain tech to transform creative economies and realize potential of an open decentralized metaverse and is author of one of the first patents for decentralized GPU computing initially published in 2009. His role as CEO, he has overseen the development of partnerships and technology integrations with the world's leading media and entertainment companies like Apple, Google, Microsoft, Endeavor, Disney, Epic Games, Unity 3D, and NVIDIA, and has led the growth of the render network to surpass the combined GPU rendering power of the combined public cloud. That sounds like pretty easy, right? Jules, it was all pretty easy to do. It's not surprising that Jules was just recently listed one of the top 50 futurists in the world, I think, in an article that our friend Rich was also in, if I'm not mistaken. I did not know, but, you know, listen, all in a day's work, right? It's been a long journey. It's been at least 25 years. I started doing all this, frankly, from high school in the early 90s. And it's been, for me, one long, continuous journey exploring graphics and democratizing content creation and hoping and wishing and helping build the future of the metaverse, which is everything can look real like it does in films and the creative narrative skills that you previously needed are not democratized and video games, which frankly also, again, if you make those look real, then you start to get into the whole metaverse simulation theory aspect of creativity and even living. And so it's just been 
decades of fascinating developments. And frankly, I'm very proud of all the work we've done as a company and even now as a decentralized organization with friends. As you should be, man. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. And would love to sort of learn about specifically the genesis of Otoy and Render and sort of if you can get us back to the origin stories of how those two kicked off, that would be great. Well, you know, Otoy, I started Otoy in my mom's house in 2002 when I I registered for Otoy.com. I, you know, got domain name. And prior to that, as some listeners may have heard, I was working on 3D graphics and video games. My background is video games. Right out of high school, I wanted to make games. My first game at 18 was called Hellcat. It was a CD-ROM game. Time Warner published it. Came out right around the time that Myst did. And shortly thereafter that, I mean, my goal for video games was to change the industry, not necessarily to make games. I wanted to create tools, technology that could do that. And so... The very first thing that I did shortly after Hellcab was a few years later, I used the browser mechanism system in Netscape and Inner Explorer to embed a 3D engine. And that's where we started to do games for the AT&T's, Warner Brothers, Nickelodeons. There's even, a, you know, on fandom.com, there's a whole 3D Groove section. That was my company before Otoy. And a lot of the people that worked with me at 3D Groove, including our current CTO, Charlie Wallace, Clay Sparks, Chief Creative Officer, they've been with me now for the, you know, this, this 26, 27-year journey. And Otoy was really meant for me to start from scratch and build a company that was initially just a few of us, right, that could change graphics technology. My real vision with Otoy was I wanted to bring GPU rendering at Pixar quality, which at that time meant, you know, things that would go into a final movie or something you've seen a $200 million tentpole. I wanted to have that run in a graphics card, make it 40 times faster, hundred times cheaper, and ultimately make it run on the cloud and in real time. And so from that perspective, I think Otoy succeeded. We have uh, for the last 12 years, we've been selling a GPU render called Octane. It was the first GPU production render on the market. And it's to this day used by everyone from, um, you know, JJ Abrams to people to, to Pac to, you know, hundreds of thousands of artists doing NFTs. And the opening of most TV shows actually, you know, are done in Noctane. It's amazing. And I think we revolutionized the CG industry by really paving the way for almost everyone, including RenderMan. Pixar's RenderMan is now doing a GPU version. Mostly, I think, because, you know, we opened the door to that and, and we've had success with Apple. I mean, we recently have been partnering with them the last couple of years, showing Octane running on, not just on the new Macs, but also on iPhones and iPads. So I think the future of GPU rendering from all of the goals that I had when I started Otoy have, have really come to pass. And the story of how the company's grown and how we got here and how Render came from that is probably worth a second leg, but I'll pause here and let you guys ask some, some questions. You know, the big thing here is that recognition, I guess, of the ability to envision, right, this capability for rendering and actually being able to execute against it. I really love to know more about how that really came to be like how do you have the confidence i guess coupled with this skill set that you developed over so many years to be able to translate this vision into reality specifically for otoy before we get to render like it just seems so dang ambitious man to set that out and to have that vision and then to actually just go out and execute against it knowing that it's a several year venture to really get to the spot where things start to look real. And we're just kind of getting there really now in the the last few years. So I would love to know, like, where does that come from, man? It really does come from a passion on my part to see the product and to know in my head how it could work. And that's kind of where a lot of, I mean, GPU rendering really came from that as well, because I knew that, sure, I mean, if you run the laws of physics and light and run it in a simulator, you should end up with something that looks like a photo. I mean, that equation, the rendering equation was written actually, you know, long before I started Otoy. But my frame of reference was like, well, I mean, let's 
let's not worry about computing power. Let's just think about what's available and how we can do this. And there are two things that occurred to me right off the bat that were interesting. One is you have video game hardware that's programmed for simple graphics, but fast and real-time graphics. And then you have basically just tons of those video cards that are out there latent just in people's machines. And you had things like SETI at home, right, at the time that were paying people or not, I don't know if they're paying people, but you'd run the screen saver and you'd solve you know, offline work. And I harnessed on both of those things as I was starting Otoy. First of all, GPU rendering, right? Which was, I remember the way that Otoy got really started as a company was through a longtime friend, collaborator, and business partner, Ari Emanuel. So if anybody's ever seen the show Entourage, Ari Gold is based on him, his relationship with Mark Wahlberg. He just came to my house when I was starting Otoy almost in year two. And that was about 20 years ago. And he saw what I was doing. He said, I want to help make this happen. I'll introduce you to everyone. And next thing I knew, J.J. Abrams and David Fincher. And, you know, I mean, I met James Cameron all within like, you know, within, within a year of that. And I was showing, you know, sort of the concepts that I had for how GP rendering could work. And, and really, when at the very, those very early years, a lot of people are saying you can't do GP rendering because ray tracing, which is very different from rasterization for PlayStation games, just wasn't possible. You can't do that because anything on a GPU needs to be run in parallel. You need to do a thousand things at once. You can't do it one after the other. And every single big breakthrough that Otoy had in its early years was because I'm a GPU guy and I was writing shader code. They could do ray tracing. And I figured those pieces out. And that sort of broke through the whole you know, mechanism. And so once I started down that path and I kept pushing forward with it, I mean, I really could see the product. And in the early days, I mean, I didn't have any financing. So it was mostly just me and a couple of guys, but I did 95% of the coding in the early years of the company, enough to prove out all the pieces, including running you know, GPU rendering on the cloud and streaming it in with low latency. And if you look at all the pieces of Otoys Tech today, the prototypes were written by me 10, 15, 16 years ago. And while we have a team now, and it's obviously the company's been really successful, we've productized Octane as a sub like Adobe Photoshop. We have tons of user growth. So that's basically funded, certainly in recent years, all of our investment and in capital into other sort of longer term projects. But we've also raised money. And all of that came about because I just imagined a future where GPUs, one, would sort of carry on Moore's law, and two, we'd have a cloud of GPUs that I could probably monetize for just decentralized distributed computing. And I also just saw many other things. I mean, I had you know other things when I was trying to do cloud rendering, low latency. If you remember back in the 2008, 2009 days when OnLive and Gaikai and Otoy were at the beginning of cloud gaming, people thought it wasn't going to work. It wasn't possible. And I had tested out and ridden my own server and low latency protocol and all those things did work. And we got our first investment really from Autodesk to build streaming apps. And those that technology, you know, 11 years later is now being used on render for streamable NFTs and all these other elements. So I still do that. I still think about the, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, I see holographic display panels, I see terabit per second speeds and all these things. And I just think about what I would do if I had the power today and just know that that's going to happen at some point. So I build for that and I've been pushing the company towards that. But there's also been many things that have inspired me as well. Like I want to see open standards as a creator and as somebody that wants to create art with my own tools. I want to see an open metaverse. I want to see something like the open web. I don't like the fact that you know you have to write things five different times for five different platforms. It shouldn't be that way. And it's certainly, as we get into the metaverse and as things become much more fluid and, and modular, it doesn't feel like we want to be in the app store model or in the app model at all, but we want to be something closer to what the vision for the open web was. And 
you know, along the way, uh, Brenda and I have been a mentor for both Render and Otoy and created Firefox, JavaScript, Mozilla, really, more recently, Brave and Basic Attention Token. He's given me such deep insight into sort of his aspirations for the open web and why it didn't quite happen, right? He didn't put a buy button in Mozilla. That would have changed everything. It would have possibly forced the iPhone, which was built on the open web initially until the after was created to maybe leverage that. So there's so many different pieces in my journey here. But I guess the thing that's always given me the, the confidence to move forward is I don't have a problem writing code in my head that, you know, on hardware that doesn't exist yet and thinking about that kind of scale and just working backwards from there. Let me ask a very specific question as it relates to NFTs. And that is, what was your first exposure to it? And how did that change your thinking as it related to the work you were already doing? So I was thinking about NFTs, not in that specific form, right? I mean, in terms of the, you know, the actual like, ERC 721 token, objectively, my first real experience was Mike, you know, people calling me up and be like, oh my God, I sold a million dollars. This is crazy. You know, Puff, who's another artist that uses our tools, you know, to kind of clued me into this. And I think we both had this, this aha moment, like, oh my God, they're just buying a JPEG. We should really do something to, to shore that up, which is why we, we have like Render, you know, archives all of people's work. Pop's most recent NFTs, uh, the carbon ones are rendered on Render. I would say that the seriousness of doing something objectively around the NFT space came around, I guess it was November of 2020 when people stuff started really taking off. And I realized that we had almost a mandate at that point to do something for artists, developers, and also for the industry. Because I think that NFTs like and the metaverse, the word metaverse at least, has created this crazy gold rush that's like, in some ways, it's the worst of the dot-com bubble days. I mean, there's just a lot of things that people try out as NFTs that kind of dilute the value of what I think great artwork is. I mean, there's amazing NFTs. This is absolutely fundamental to the future of art. I was thinking, though, about the space as early as 2017 when I was writing the white paper for, for the Render Network, and we should discuss what Render does. But Render was ERC... 20 token, utility token for GPU compute power. However, I was saying that there's four phases. Once we replace all of Amazon's compute and I can get this working and everyone's GPUs are on the network, it's not just compute power that Render is providing. It's going to be this provenance for IP. If you create something on the Render network, if you just do a render, all of the source files, all of the original assets, whoever uploads the model first, whoever owns the model, whoever remixes it, all of that basically gets stored in receipts on chain. It's incredibly powerful. And I was like, this is going to be some sort of a funnel for royalties. And that was before NFTs were a thing, or even, you know, specifically around ERC 720 or 1155 tokens and all that. I just was thinking about that. And render is still fundamentally that value. I mean, it's, it's almost like when we talk, get into the discussion specifically about NFTs and how they intersect with render, you know, I'll sort of share my thoughts about how we are nowhere near the, you know, the point where I think we should be because we're still selling in some ways, you know, very simple pointers into, a, into things that are off chain. But yeah, my experience with render was, I mean, almost, I always wanted to have digital art, digital objects, and something that would validate that. But I mean, some of those ideas predated crypto. I mean, I, I took out my decentralized, you know, token, yeah, paying tokens for Tracy Ray's right in 2009. I, I think the initial work on it was 2004. This is obviously before there was Bitcoin or anything like that. I was just thinking ahead as you know, as far as, I mean, it's great that crypto occurred because now it creates a value that everyone agrees there's, you know, you can have sort of virtualized currency for anything really, sometimes nothing, but in the case of what we're thinking about both art and utility, and that's been great. I mean, it's really been allowed us last four years to get render off the ground and scale it in a way that I don't think would have been possible pre-Ethereum, pre-crypto. It's incredible to hear the way you're thinking about this stuff. And I might make a special request to Jeff and Josh that we just have more episodes or we could just hang out with you and maybe something will rub off on us or something, but uh, this is incredible stuff. Um, <laughs> not that 
for my co-host. There's plenty of, in their own right that I hope rubs off on me. We've already rubbed off on Ethan enough. Clearly, there's no more rubbing to be done there. <laughs> Anyways, you alluded to it. You know, we talked a little bit about, you know, render and how it intersects with NFTs. But then you kind of said, there's more, right? There's, there's a new direction that you want to go with this. It goes a lot deeper than it might be obvious at the moment. So can you speak a little bit about your vision for NFTs and renders and move forward here? And I think that where we are kind of at, I mean, for a lot of NFT today is you, you basically have an asset and some variation of, you know, templates for smart contracts. A lot of things are just some simple media files, right? I mean, a lot of the marketplaces you just upload. I mean, if it's fancy, it's a GLTF or maybe it's an iframe or a web page and it's, it's a static thing. And yes, you can create, you know, some interesting things around that, but I'm just speaking from the experience of NFTs that have been done with art tools, which, you know, I, Time I checked, it was about $800 million worth of NFTs were, were created with Otoy Tech. Some of those are on, you know, directly rendered on Render. A lot of that, of course, is people and, and pop, but there's thousands of artists that have done really well. And almost in all cases, and this was where we started with people, they take the output of what's coming out of, out of let's say, Render even, right? Which is, you know, an, an, essentially an image. That gets uploaded to Nifty or Makerspace, you know, something. And then you sell that as an NFT and then maybe there's something else to it. But what's really interesting is that if you get rid of the monetization part of it, if the NFT itself, I mean, the NFT itself is, has value because the artist says this image represents the work. What's even more interesting is that the image is actually rendered on chain. We have proof of render. All of render's value comes from actual work that is coming off, off of a ledger. I mean, we have a, our own ledger. It pre-exists, you know, it's going to be centralized, but every asset 3D model is hashed. You could you look it up on IPFS or ARWE, for example, if you wanted to sort of have that on chain, but the rendering itself is validated by decentralized nodes. So just the image, the job of creating the image is an NFT. We, we've yet to hook that up to marketplace because large marketplaces like OpenSea are too simple. We can have a receipt that shows this image done a render. But when I'm trying to do it with people and other artists, and even with, with, you know, we can talk about a relationship with Solana and Metaplex, is I just think you need to rethink what an NFT could be. And for that to happen, we need to be able to connect the actual render job, not just the output of it, as an NFT, so that owning it triggers, let's say, a render. And that can generate a procedural cavalcade of things where instead of people rendering two things, right? One of his you know, early NFTs was whoever won the presidential election, you get a different video, but he did the videos twice. Today, we have people using render to render 5,000 different images for each collection. And that's great. Render can deliver all those things. It can give you that compute power. But what would be more interesting is on purchase, based on some Oracle, a, a render is triggered. And that those tools are what we're working on. And those have been there Artists have been doing interesting things with that for a while, but we need a partner that where I can actually have those NFTs that are essentially pure rendered jobs. And then shortly after that, like, like real-time streams, virtual worlds where the same sort of logic is applied. I need a partner where I can actually put that into a marketplace and that is willing to work with me on you know, royalty streams for that. And that partner out of all of the ones we've been talking to over the years turned out to be Metaplex and Solana. And I've had a great relationship with Raj and Antoli, who founded Solana and deep into this. And they're open-mindedness around how to define how this works is why I went to Lisbon in November and did that, that whole presentation around you know, rendering the metaverse with Solana. Because I think that with that, I mean, now that you have Solana NFTs going on to OpenSea and others, this will help, I think, push NFTs into a much more interesting space. The aspect of doing something that's procedural, also mixing to NFTs is kind of a pretty model. And you put something decentral, and that to me is not what this is. Like, if you want to have true collaborative workflows, and also just have something where a hundred people contribute to an NFT, and all of them get paid, you know, accordingly, that, that I think we want to sort of trigger on Metaplex with Solana, and it's not just on Metaplex; it would work in Magic Eden and other places. 
And then there's a the whole concept of real-time NFT. So I've shown, if you go to otoy.com today, you can go to a menu called Stream, which shows our streaming tech. And you can have Blender as a stream and Chromium and Octane, it's software software. And also, you know, a bunch of Unreal projects that were done with our tools. And those are the kinds of things that I want you to be able to build on Render and then live stream. Yeah, in other words, and all the assets would go through the same sort of validation and royalty you know, checkpoints that we have for an offline procedural render. And that's how the metaverse should work. And that's how NFTs in the metaverse should work. All of that, I think, next six months, and certainly with Solana as a partner where we can test this, it'll be exciting. And we, we need to hook that up. And I think then the conversation, once those things are even live, even a few of those types of NFTs are available, that will get people to explore as artists and creators how to leverage this tech. And that's, that's what I think the potential of NFTs in the metaverse is really... That's really neat. So the team at Solana just reached out to me and said they have a, a hack house in LA coming up. And like, yes. are you going to be involved in that? I might show up. I'm definitely aware of it. I just, you know, schedule pending. Yeah, I might show up uh, maybe around the 5th or the 6th. I know it's going till the 6th. So we almost hosted it with them. It's just, it's just been a crazy, crazy sort of few weeks for us. And we may do our own with them down the line. I mean, I think right now we're, we're still building out the tool set. We've got some artists that are working with us on really beta testing some of those pieces that I just mentioned. But it's one of things amazing. And there's a lot more. I mean, I've, I've been sort of uh, talking about GLTF, which is standard 3D, like JPEG format that you can drop into Metaplex or many other marketplaces. We're, I'm actually working part of the GLTF working group. And you know we've been looking at bringing in extensions to GLTF that allow you to then hook into Render. Or, and Render itself isn't just Otoy software. You know, we brought in competing Render engines. We have Arnold from Autodesk, that uh, Redshift from Axon, also you know, coming to Render, Unreal we're working up. So the idea about creating an open marketplace and an open system is pretty important. And there are open standards that are out there that with a little bit of tender love and care might actually turn into something that could leverage and help push this forward, not just us doing the work and showing it being done. Those are all intersectional conversations happening with Swan and others. And of course, we're talking to everyone as well. We're not just focused just on the Swan side. Yeah, so I have the difficult challenge of asking about your roadmap, and I feel like this entire episode has been about your roadmap, and you mentioned a couple partners. Are there any more specific products that we haven't covered yet that are worth sort of mentioning in any other types of partnerships that are sort of evolving as you're looking at ways to add value to the space? Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning what we call sort of the Metaverse Archive projects. We've got three of those that we announced last year. There are several reasons why those exist. One is I'm, every single one of the cases I know, you know, the artist involved or the creator involved, you know, either personally or, or family, right? And so we've got People's Archive, which came out of that very first conversation where how do we make NFTs more than just the JPEG? Well, all of People's work is done, I mean, literally eight years of it is done in Octane in our rendering software. So putting together rendered jobs and putting together sort of the ground truth of his work, not necessarily for sale as an NFT, but almost as a zero edition, right? Something that is on chain that can be used to instantiate NFTs, which is all that NFTs are. They're never the, really the original work. And even if we were to give somebody a rendered job, it's better to kind of put that in a vault and have it so that your life work and that's your value, right? As, as an artist in, in terms of, you know, this is my filmography, this is my art, artistography. We're doing that with Mike, and it's easy because a lot of his work is done in 3D and our tools, and it applies easily to render. The other two projects are the Roddenberry Archive. I grew up in the Roddenberry household. My best friend's dad was Gene Roddenberry, so I know the family well. And Ron Roddenberry, his son, my best friend, was an investor in Otoy. And we've been working on archiving things, building projects for years. It just got a lot more serious about four or five years ago. And he's been interested in having rendered the source where all of the digitization of his father's materials would go. And even better, with funding from the Roddenberry Estate, we've established a team led by the team that worked on the show with, with Gene to build all the assets from the show and every single 
shotless practically on render. And it's not, that also isn't for sale, it's for reference. So it's something that we could imagine being used again for something like, you know, the Smithsonian, right? The Smithsonian has a physical exhibit with 11 foot enterprise. This could be a digital version of that. And that is how I imagine the metaverse also happened. If you wanted to know and utilize something from the Roddenberry archive to describe or to do something or to just play an episode of Star Trek back in holographic form. I mean, that's the kind of things that we're doing there. And the third project is Alex Ross, my um, one of my good friends. You can see these paintings behind me. He is best known for doing most of the major design work for Marvel and for decades now. He's an amazing comic artist, close friend of mine for 25 years. I'm in the Marvel universe as a character, thanks to him and a couple of writers. Um, and we're taking all of his work and turning those into, you know, into 3D assets, which cover tons of, of Marvel and DC history. And having sort of a shared sort of, you know, ground truth, like reference, you know, layer in the metaverse for these projects is super important. And I think we wouldn't be in a position to push open standards, push how you know, NFTs could work if we didn't have an idea of how the artwork itself could leverage that. So those projects are exciting. And there's a lot of great work happening in the Roddenberry Archive. Like we're showing just at the very tail end of what I was showing in Lisbon, I was showing how we're bringing back, you know, actual shots with characters in there. And that's complicated, but it leverages rendering the most amazing of ways. And then lastly, we have another partnership with Lightfield Labs. They're building holographic display panels. That to me is one of those incredible endpoints where other than goggles, you know, for AR and for volumetric experiences, I think true holographic displays without any glasses needed as shown on Star Trek, right? The Star Trek holodeck, that is going to be a thing. It might be later this decade, but the technology is there and render 10 years from now will for sure be powering that, which, which is, you know, a whole topic in and of itself. I have a question. How far are we away from folks that are listening, being able to take their childhood home or their science lab or their art studio and turning it into, you know, this three-dimensional world that people can access, that they can show their children. Are we there? Is that sort of really available? You know, we have a good friend, Scott Page, that's doing some of these projects. Like he's working with Sue Wong on, on her house. And it's the most amazing, beautiful house in Beverly Hills that that is sort of a testament to history. Like Jimi Hendrix has played there. You know, I think about like the average person that just has some really cool memories in their home and experiences that, that they want to live on forever. How far are we from being able to help them out with, with these opportunities in a seamless, sort of not too expensive, not too technologically complicated way? We're really close. I mean, I think that you're, you're also talking degrees of quality because, I mean, I guess, you know, when you're talking about preserving your, your home, it's like, well, you can take pictures and movies of your home with your iPhone, right? And you know, it used to be that you had to go buy a physical camera. And if it, that doesn't mean that you're at Jeffrey Unsworth with, you know, and doing a Kubrick film with it. But the idea of scanning your, your home in 3D is like ever since Apple put the LiDAR and the phones and then the iPads, you know, you've got a bunch of apps that can do a pretty good job, you know, and you of course have Matterport. I mean, there are tons of real estate listings and even sets, right? Where people use Matterport to scan in, you know, that thing, paste it on a web and download a GLTF. I mean, we're getting to the point where photogrammetry, basic photogrammetry from most devices that are already owned by you is, is getting to be fairly easy. It's not trivial. It's not as simple as just shooting a video or an image. I mean, you have to do a bit more work. What might be the solution? I mean, maybe a drone that's like a Roomba that just does it all for you that, you know, you can order from Amazon and you're done with it. I mean, that's something like that is probably doable today, whether, you know, it's something everyone wants to spend money on versus Apple or another is getting their, you know, getting what you can do inside of a phone or possibly even a wearable just capture the environment more and more granularly. I think it's very doable. I think where the stuff we're doing for the Rod Archive is, is really interesting because we do have physical assets and locations and things where we've done scanning. We have LightStage, which gives you, you know, that's what we do for film and television. I mean, all the Marvel movies, most of the DC movies, we scan in those actors digitally in a facility here. 
and it gets you back something that is absolutely perfect. It's a perfect recreation of that. That tech is probably going to come to everyone at some point, maybe five years, six years, but we have that fidelity. The other thing we've learned is that for environments, you can scan something in, but it's even better to have AI figure out what the object is and then have a you know artist kind of clean that up and model that. And then you have AI itself that's so good. I mean, that's where deep fakes come from. You're going to have deep homes where you could just take you know a bunch of images, even old movies, even you know movies from that have been out there where there was no photogrammetry work done, and you'll be able to extract depth information. I mean, that's that's coming. That's going to be fairly powerful. And it's going to be something that I think merged with some good rendering software, inverse rendering pieces that we're adding it's going to be much more doable in the next you know, two years. I think 2023 might be a tipping point, especially with all the metaverse attention about, my God, everything needs to be ready to go in 3D. That's going to be a forcing function. And you know, our goal is to provide the same way we do with rendering, the best possible tools so that you don't have to be you know, it's, it's a high-end shop. You can use your iPad, your phone, and we've got the software and cloud services to make all of that work well. And even artists that you can connect with through our network to, to help you know, improve on that. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, bro. We could definitely go Joe Rogan on you and talk for like <laughs> three hours here. There's no question about it. So many cool things happening. Really curious though, man. Jules, where do you draw your inspiration from when you look at in particular the NFT space right now? Is there something that gets you jazzed, a company, an idea, a product that's out there that you get excited about? I mean, I'll be honest, it's the artists doing the work in our software that gets me the most excited. I mean, if it weren't for Pact and people, I mean, using our tools, like I it wouldn't be the same thing. I mean, I've always had sort of the, this sort of utopian, and I'd say Star Trek's a big inspiration for me. Obviously, there's a reason why we're, I'm even personally invested in the Roddenberry Archive. I do imagine a utopian thing where people could just make money being creative. They don't have to worry about things. There's no, and that is something that I want to see happen. What's amazing about the NFT space is that artists, I mean, I met when I was at New York for the last NFT, NFT that I was at here in the US, you know, there's a 17 year old person sitting next to me who just learned Octane a year ago and just sold a million dollar NFT with it. And, and I was always hoping that the tools we would have would not just enable you know, people to do things technically, but also to be financially independent if possible. So I do see every success that I see in the NFT space coming from some portion of our tool chain is inspiring. But as far as creative stuff goes, I mean, I mean, there's so many things that are being done, especially towards real time, and especially as people get much more creative, how they sell their NFTs, like, you know, have Dead Mouse doing his own world. Everyone's doing their own little world where you buy the NFTs within their world. And that's why we need streamable NFTs. That's why we need the Solana partnerships. We can at least get those things on chain and let them do that. Because right now, a lot of them are downloading, you know, Unreal Executables, or it's a simple GLTF thing. And I want to blow that open. And so there's a lot of artists that we're talking to about just enabling that. They've got the art division for those pieces. And ultimately, even with the Ronnie Archive, like the idea of exploring, you know, the enterprise in each era, each year is something that needs to be a streamable NFT that you've done an NFT that you would buy yourself, but something on chain where the data is there, it loads up and you can view it and, and experience it. That is, you know, seeing those pieces come together in the next few months, super inspiring to me. And I would say Metaplex, the Metaplex team, their agility also, I mean, you know, that's why I think this is all possible. If we were just doing the tech and we didn't have a marketplace partner that could, that could help us bring this to move everything out of the way, make it all happen, I think that would be a lot harder and a lot longer further out there. So I'm grateful for that. And I think that's also, again, Raj inspired me a lot. You know, the, his vision for Solana is pretty much aligned with my vision for the metaverse. So I think we're, we're thinking along the same ways, which has been, it's been great. Well, exciting stuff. We'll be keeping a close eye on what you're up to, man. You've really had your finger on, I think, the pulse of so many amazing advancements here that we're now seeing come to fruition. So I uh, can't wait for what's next. We interrupt the Edge of NFT podcast to reveal one of the best kept secrets in the NFT space right now, the Koi Network. If you are a creator or a builder or an investor in groundbreaking projects, you need to dive into Koi ASAP. 
Why? Imagine a new internet where each time your posts get viewed on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter, you earn rewards. Koi's revolutionary decentralized infrastructure scales this new internet to the whole globe, transforming attention into an asset and every creator into an earner, all without the expensive high-energy usage of old-school blockchains. Here is the best way to learn more and earn more by becoming a founding member of the growing Koi community. Go to edgeofnft.com koi. That's edgeofnft.com slash K-O-I-I, two I's. There you can publish your first Koi NFTs for free and start earning Koi today. The new internet is coming. Don't you want to be valued on it? Next. We'd like to take a step back, though, for a minute, if it's cool with you, man, and get your personal perspective on some questions. They're really fun questions that we call edge quick hitters to let our listeners get to know you a little bit better in some of your experiences in life. We're looking for like short single word or fewer responses, but maybe we'll go a little deeper here or there. Uh, and so you ready to dive in on these things? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Cool. Question number one, what is the first thing you remember ever purchasing in your life? Greedo, the Kenner Star Wars action figure. Damn, that's solid. You still got a hold of that thing? I do. Oh, I do. nice. Wow. Good job. I have all my Great. toys. There's a reason the company's called O Toy. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, too many of my Star Wars figures uh, were taken out by my BB gun, unfortunately. Um, bad move <laughs> on my part. Um, <laughs> question number two. What is the first thing you remember ever selling in your life? It's weird. I mean, I guess the first thing I remember selling was my video game. You know, like I created a video game this was like, you know, I was 16 and it never actually came out. It was one of the products between Hog Cabin and another one that didn't quite make it through there, but it was called Rivers of Dawn and it was sold to Virgin Interactive, which I think went out of business. But I remember being very proud of the fact that I actually was getting money for that. I mean, there's probably things that I'd done before, but I was a teenager. So that was something where I created this thing whole cloth and a large company like Virgin's buying it. That was, I remember that distinctly. And certainly as an impression of something I sold that, that really did sort of oh, man. sink in. How special yeah. is that, right? So yeah. Cool. You could, you, as a kid, especially, right. You make something you realize, yeah. holy shit, somebody's willing to pay me for this thing that I did. Like yeah. mind blowing. <clears throat> yeah, totally, man. Amazing stuff. Question number three, what is the most recent thing you purchased? The art of Star Trek. I actually have the book right here. And uh, it's a beautiful book that I you know, purchased basically to get reference for the Roddenberry Archive. So I, this just arrived. It's a great book. It's, it's beautiful. Let's check out the inside. It's just got all the making of of the film, the motion picture. I actually am going back and buying a lot more physical books. Uh, you know, I know I can get some of these things online, but that's it. That's one of those things where I just, I just, I've been leafing through it actually, you know, even earlier today. And, and it's just some beautiful things in there. It's like that era of, you know, Stanley Kubrick and, you know, Spielberg and Lucas getting started from 79 was really one of the, it was almost the culmination of a lot of those things. You had Douglas Trumbull who did a lot of the special effects work on that. And prior to that, 2001 and, and other films. So yeah, yeah. That's the most recent thing cool, I bought. Man, yeah, considering what they had to work with too, right? Some special feats there. Question number four. What yeah. is the most recent thing you sold? I can't remember anything other than basically selling somebody a license to Octane, which I guess is personally selling, <laughs> selling something. I don't know. And I have not recently put anything up on eBay or anything like that. So now I would have to sort of just say generically a license to one of the software products we make. That works. Um, I have so people on that. I've individually like talked to all of our customers and potential customers, and I've convinced a couple of personally to go and, and get an Octane license. So I guess I can take a little bit of credit for that. One or two of those sales. That's a sale if I've ever heard of one, man. That's yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Question five. What is your most prized possession? 
the cover of that Marvel comics with me on it, I was given the original. I just tweeted about it like a couple of weeks ago. Alex Ross sent it to me. That is, if I have a tombstone ever, that should go on it for sure. So that is partly <laughs> my most prized possession. I, I never intend to ever sell it. It is for life. And I have a couple of other original Alex Ross paintings that are that he's done. I didn't just go out and buy them. I and mean, he did them for projects we worked on together. And you know, some of those are amazing. So I, a couple of them are of me. So that's, I would say that's pretty high on the list of, of prized possessions. I dig it. I dig it, man. Question number six, if you could buy anything in the world, digital, physical service and experience that's currently for sale, what would it be? What do you got your eye on? Well, it's weird because I always know that knew that the thing I really wanted to buy or purchase that had the money was like, you know, Zeta flops of compute power so that I could power something like the metaverse. It's never really been far from my, from my mind. And in a weird way, like renders provided that. I mean, we have essentially like unlimited compute power. I would say that there are items that, that like, you know, the original Starship Enterprise, not in the Smithsonian, but the one that Jeff Bezos has in his lobby, I think, for uh, the origin. It's like, I wouldn't mind buying, <laughs> at some point buying that from him. And then as far as just still, I mean, you know, it's hard to say. There's the things that I really value in some ways are sort of intangibles. I mean, you know, there's most of what I do is, you know, through my companies and, and through Render, which I consider to be really an organization more than a company, mm -hmm. are to fulfill some of the things I want most in the world. And it's not just about me personally. It's about the ideals that I want to see for you know, people creating things like to be art in a vacuum or an island doesn't make as much sense as being able to build in a medium that is shared and that is built on by others. And that's very much how crypto art, I think, is evolving. So that's why those Zetaflops of compute power, for me, it's like, I don't see that happening without somebody coordinating that off and making it almost an open system for the metaverse. And render is ultimately, I think, succeeding in doing that, which is great. So don't need to buy that. Um, it, it seems to just be self-organizingly emergently happening, which is fantastic. That is indeed. So I'm checking right now on Amazon. It looks like maybe Bezos is selling his enterprise there. Hmm. It looks like it's, but it's only got like a four-star review. So <laughs> I might have to like check. On the yeah, nice. I don't know if you want that one. Moving on, sir. <laughs> Question number seven. If you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would that be? Being Zen about the future would be important. And, and I think that's something that I try to pass on to others as well. I mean, Zen in a good way, right? Zen in a way where, you know, I think that the zero-sum game aspect of a lot of ventures, businesses, even industries, at some point is hurtful. And I, I don't know, there's just not enough people that truly seem to care about open standard, open systems, even though most multi-trillion dollar companies today came out of the open web. I have this sort of Zen thing of like, you know, this, this, should, this layer, you know, should be idealistically handled. And I think that comes from just a Zen approach to certain aspects of society. So I guess that would be my choice to pass on to, to others if I could. Very cool. Flip side of that question. If you could eliminate one of your personality traits from the next generation, what would that be? I think that being outraged and mad at others without understanding that person's life experience is I've done that, you know, and, and, and it's something that I definitely don't like about myself where I've certainly worked on, on minimizing because I think misunderstandings at existential levels don't need to happen. But I, I also feel that that's where when you're sort of looking at other people through their work and their art um, and you can see that aspect of them, that, that sort of is the flip side of it. But I would say, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of of anger and, and a lot of snarkiness and a lot of lack of depth of understanding who you're mad at. And, and I've certainly, as I'd say over the last 30 years, grown as a person a lot, just, just sort of going through that and, and seeing the value of, of not doing that. And that's sort of, again, where the Zenness comes in. So I would say, yes, eliminating that kind of, you know, instant outrage. And I think social media has been a huge, like accelerant and just liquid fuel on, on that fire. And, and that is unfortunate. Art less so, I think that's kind of something that I wish to see less of, both in myself yeah. and, and in others, you know? Yeah. No, it's a great call out. 
Much yeah, appreciated. I've heard it said, just assume that everyone is doing the best that they can with the resources that they have. A little bit easier, Jules. Question number nine. What did you do just before joining us on the podcast? I was playing around with the um, space stuff in the Roddenberry Archive in Octane. It's the space station where the Enterprise and Star Trek Three comes out of. And one of the team members had just you know, finished the model and had sent it over. And I was just spinning it around and sending notes back. So that was what I was doing right before I jumped on with you guys. Did you do a good job? Pretty close? Oh, it's beautiful. Nice. It's absolutely beautiful. Question number 10, last one. What are you going to do next after the podcast? I have some notes for the Octane team and also just, you know, notes for all the different people working with it. Otoy. So just work at this very desk. I usually spend about 10 hours a day just in this very spot. And I love it. I mean, I love working with the team. And, and I would say that the render team, I mean, the render organization is much bigger than Otoy. We've got a great, wonderful community of mods and others and soon third parties building pieces. And I just engage a lot. I mean, if you just follow me and even on, we have a Facebook group with 50,000 almost artists. I'm in there all the time answering these things. I just live and breathe Otoy and render. I'll be doing that right after we're done with, with this podcast, which is also part of that whole journey. Yeah, man, for sure. Well, that's pretty evident uh, in, in having talked to you. And, and we have some uh, we have a late breaking question here. We got a bonus question we got to throw in this mm -hmm. mix. And that is, what is your Marvel character's superpower and how was it acquired? Well, I was terribly disappointed to find out that my character, Kevin Schumer, does not have any superpowers, but his uh, uncle was the Spider-Man villain known as the Tinkerer. And in the Marvel Universe, my character has created an app and gives tours and has a ton of awesome kit. So he's got a fantastic car, apparently a gun used by Captain Marvel that could destroy the universe, and all sorts of other stuff. So I guess my superpower is building an app and, and monetizing that in the Marvel Universe and occasionally fighting alongside Captain Iron Man when there's a threat. Uh, to the entire universe. That was apparently part of my story arc in the Marvels. It's still ongoing. I think the last issue is just coming out now. Nice. Right on. All right, cool. We got that one out there for all our curious listeners. So, hey, that's Edge Quick Haters. Jules, thanks so much for participating, man. It was great to uh, hear your answers on that. Hey there. Want to know which NFT mints are taking off? Would you like to know about them in real time while they're still taking off? What about tracking NFTs before they launch and seeing which ones are gathering a real Twitter following or boosting their discords? Which ones are hot and could take off like a rocket because so many people are excited for their launch? Mythia, a forthcoming NFT project themselves, have built both of these tools for you even before they've launched, and it's free just because they're cool like that. Go to edgeofnft.com slash Mythia to find out more. That's M-Y-T-H-I-A. Find out any upcoming NFTs, Discord and Twitter growth trajectory, and which mints are happening in real time so you can jump on if you see them taking off. Go to edgeofnft.com slash Mythia to find out more. M-Y-T-H-I-A. Yes, it's free. I'm heading there now myself. We also have some hot topics to cover. Yeah. What do you say, Ethan, we want to dive in? Let's hit it. I'll introduce these. Yeah. Okay. Monthly NFT trading volume reaches all-time high of $6 billion in January. All right. Wow. Monthly NFT grew 129% in January relative to December. Much of the increase was due to the latest contender in the NFT marketplace scene called Looks Rare which accumulated nearly $2 billion in volume after its launch on January 10th. Yeah, I mean, I first noticed looks rare when trying to think purchase some other NFT and looking at the gas eaters, right? On the Ethereum Etherscan, right? And I was like, looks rare, what's that? You know? And then, yeah, sure enough, a few days later, it was 
you know, they were doing this, this really generous or whatever you want to call it stunt where they were basically gifting people tokens for what their trading volume on OpenSea. And also those tokens basically pay you back as sort of a member of the community for the success of LooksRare. So they've really taken a dive into this kind of community sourced um, platform. So there's a few things to unpack there. I mean, number one, this was a month that was a pretty difficult month for the overall stock market and for the crypto market. And yet NFT volume grew significantly, certainly is as a testament of what's to come this year. There's a lot of cool projects that came out and a lot of building that's been happening in 2021. And I think people have just started to realize what all that building is going to manifest this year. And people talk about the NFT bubble on some of these projects without utility. At the same time that bubble burst, I think we're going to see a cornucopia of NFT projects with real utility. But what do I know? Jules, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know it's always exciting to sort of see different models applied to uh, NFTs, including rewards and things like that. I mean, I would say one of the things we that I want to sort of crack open is getting you know ticket-based NFTs to experiences in the metaverse, right? That is something that I kind of feel is is drill ground. And also within those experiences, not just like just buying something that is you know goes in your wallet or goes into your icon or whatever, but being able to take pictures and shoot. I mean, there's so many things that I think are, are more interactive and. and participatory, but also have a rewards mechanism. In other words, if what you're doing in interacting, let's say with an NFT object, you know, that is unique and that is there for, you know, it also triggers other kinds of rewards that is in a sense, it's a form of staking. And I, I love that idea. And I think that there's a lot to play with once we have the tools in place to make that easy for artists and creators to, to build on. Yeah. One other thing I think is interesting about this is if you kind of connect the growth of these assets, call them assets, right? Versus stocks or, or even crypto tokens and things like that besides NFTs. And you look how that corresponds to what's going on in the quote unquote news, right? It's fascinating, right? Because I don't listen to it much, but like, I'm not seeing like people talking about NFTs. Maybe I'll talk about one or two on CNBC or Fox or whatever, sort of these mainstream news channels. And it's fascinating to see sort of these mainstream markets kind of taking their hits while something that I think we, even though we're, it's big in our, our consciousness, it's, it's sort of like a underground market kind of growing behind the scenes. Fascinating. I would also just say that even Pac, you know, when he did merge and it was like, what, $91 million and put him as the number one living artist in the world, like that was kind of underreported in a sense, you know, I mean, of course, I think there's an awareness of Pac, I mean, it's recovered from his first Sotheby's sale, but also, by the way, talking to Pac, and just, I mean, I get schooled whenever I I have an email thread with him or or he explains to me any of what he's doing. I mean, it's so intricately well thought out and you have Ash and all these other things, you know, it's beautiful. And that's the kind of thing that I think is, I mean, it's complex maybe for a lot of artists to wrap their heads around, but I do think that as tools come out that make creativity even in that layer easier, you'll see some interesting elements there. But I think Pac is still... I mean, it's, it's, I was, you know, even Mike and people was, was putting out the email thread between the two of them that they were pocket people to get into NFTs. And of course, that became the first big splash. I do think that look to pop for the future of, of how NFTs work. I mean, on, a, on a, how to you know, monetize them, how to think about these things. I mean, there's such incredible creativity there. He really is sort of like the Picasso of, the, of this age on the blockchain, certainly for crypto art, super inspiring. And also, I think, massively influential on what people might try to do. Yeah, More than so anything, man, for me, dude, it's... It's just like, it's just continuing to grow, whether there's something sexy for the media to cover or not. You know, what's happening with NFTs is truly revolutionary and evolutionary. And 
that train has left the station, right? It's growing. This is one metric, right? The the trading volume of what's happening there, but there are many others. And again, it's, it's just a rocket ship and we're just at the very beginning right now. So exciting times. We had such a, a deep and wonderful, and I think I'm going to have to like listen to it in my sleep for days and like osmosize it uh, conversation <laughs> that we're running out of time here. And I think that's enough for hot topics. Really cool conversation. I think it's about time to wrap up before we go. Why don't we make sure we find out from Jules, you know, where can listeners go specifically to learn more about you and the projects you're working on? They can certainly follow me on Twitter at Jules Urbach or at Otoy, at Render Token, which is the Render Network account. And then Otoy.com and render.x.io for the render network. Awesome. Nice. Perfect, man. Thanks so much. And I think we may be doing a little giveaway, maybe a little swag bag of some uh, fun Otoy stuff. So keep an eye out crew on our socials and we'll give you all the deets around that. Really excited about that. Thanks for the generosity, Jules. We appreciate it. So I think we have reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. So thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on this starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to iTunes right now, rate us and say something awesome. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. And remember, we always invite you to co-create and build with us at Edge of NFT. We're unlocking a whole new way to connect and collaborate with us through our own NFT drops, spirit seeds leading to living tree NFTs, which light the way to our event, NFTLA, a -a one-of-a-kind, immersive, and unforgettable experience at LA Live in Los Angeles, March 28th to the 31st. Check it out at nftla.live and move quick on early bird tickets as they are selling fast. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great NFT content. Thanks again for sharing this time with us today. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go, just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.